Hey, it's Andy from Talking to Teens. It would mean the world to us if you could leave us a five-star review. Reviews on Apple and Spotify help other parents find the show, and that helps us keep the lights on. Thanks for being a listener, and here's the show. You're listening to Talking to Teens, where we speak with leading experts from a variety of disciplines about the art and science of parenting teenagers. I'm your host, Andy Earle. We're here with Dr. Jess Shatkin, the author of Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe. Dr. Shatkin is one of the country's top voices in child and adolescent mental health. He's a professor of child and adolescent psychiatry and pediatrics at the New York School of Medicine, the vice chair for education at the Child Study Center, and he's been featured in the New York Times, Parade, the Wall Street Journal, and all over the place. He's also the host of About Our Kids, a two-hour call-in radio show broadcast live on Sirius XM's Dr. Radio. We're talking with Jess today about his book, Born to be Wild. Why do teens engage in risky behavior? Even when teens know the risks, they still often make bad choices. The answer, it turns out, is not because they think they're invincible. There's something else going on. Jess has gone deep into the neuroscience. He spent his career working with and studying adolescents, and he's uncovered some very interesting findings. Jess, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I've just read this book, Born to be Wild, Why Teens Take Risks and How We Can Help Keep Them Safe, and I'm super excited about it. It speaks to us here because I love kind of like using science to help people think about things in a new way, and this topic especially of why teens just kind of go crazy for a few years is something that a lot of our listeners are very interested and keen to solve. So can you talk a little about how you got interested in this topic yourself and got to the point where you're writing this 250-page, you know, well-researched book on it? Sure, sure. Thanks for, first of all, having me on your show and happy to talk with you. I got interested in teenagers, I think, as a teenager myself. I always had an understanding, maybe because I'm the youngest of five kids, maybe because of the family I grew up in, our constitution, I don't know what, but in some way I was always interested in the change that I was going through. I knew that the feelings that I had were not how I'd felt before. And I imagined that one day I wouldn't quite feel this way or this intensely. And I I understood that as a teenager, as I watched people around me struggle with things, as I watched myself struggle with things. We have a name for that in psychiatry. We call it pseudo-maturity, this idea that you're kind of a little beyond your years, but you're not really because you're still a kid. And I think that (laughs) I, I think it's a defense, you know, and I think I had a little bit of that defense, I think partly because as the youngest of five, I had seen my siblings have some struggles. And so whether it was with drugs or sex or, you know, breaking rules. And so I, I was connected to that. I also saw some of my peers having major struggles. So it was always just in my mind. And as I aged, I went to medical school late. I was 29 when I started med school. 
but I was very interested in adolescence from the beginning. And the, the field was either going to be pediatrics or child adolescent psychiatry. And I chose the latter because you get more time with people because fewer people do it. The need is greater because the problems are so profound and so deep. And as I got into that, I found that amongst the population of people I like working with, it's really about 10 to 30 years of age that there's so many changes that happen during those two decades, which yeah. are greater than those that came before and those that come after that. I just thought, you know, this is an area that I really want to understand more deeply. And that's, I guess, the genesis of the, of the background for me. Yeah. The possibilities for change are so huge during that time. Yeah. Um, it's like really exciting. Yeah. And so then my work is bled in one way or another um, towards that direction. I, I developed a program at the college at NYU that teaches about mental health studies, and that's become a big part of what I do. I've taken on mostly adolescent patients in my, and, and by adolescent, I really mean, you know, say 12, 13, 10 to 30 years of age, but young adults yeah. and adolescents. Uh, I have developed programs other in that area, trained doctors to work with those people. So writing the book was really an, an outgrowth of all that I'd been learning. And as I, as I learned more to prepare myself better clinically and as a teacher, I thought there's a lot here that I wasn't taught in my training that I'm learning now as I go. And there's a way to share this. And it's not that uh, things that I said in the book haven't been said elsewhere, but I tried to, and so, some of them haven't been shared elsewhere, honestly, in terms of research, but I tried to make the focus on risk because risk is such an area that we all struggle with as teens and as yeah. parents and teachers managing teens. So I felt like that needed a really fine point on it. And so I wanted to take all that research that had been done and, and look at it through that lens. I read everything about teenagers, you know, that I can find and have read tons of books on it. We've had all these people on the podcast and there's stuff in here that I didn't know. And you go into all these like specific changes that are happening in the teenage brain. Whereas, you know, a lot of people kind of like hand wave it like, oh, there's these big changes happening in the teenage brain, which caused these things to happen, you know, right, but right. you really like spell it out and go into specific neurotransmitters and hormones and what they do and how it's changing in the teenage brain and how it's different from both childhood and adulthood. But you do it in a way that's not academic-y boring. You've got stories and it's engaging and it's fun and it challenges kind of the way that most people think uh, about adolescence and about how this period work. And one of the big things early on in the book is this idea of invincibility, this theory that the reason teenagers engage in all of this crazy risk-taking is because they think they're invincible. Yeah. And so why do they think they're invincible and how does that work? So the invincibility thing is a lesson that most of us who are over the age of 35 or 40 and who trained in mental health got about adolescence. We got the message in our training for 50 years, 60 years now that adolescents must think that they're invincible. Otherwise, who would drive drunk? Who would have sex without a condom? Who would, right. uh, you know, whatever, jump off a bridge into the river? I mean, who would think to do something like that? They must be not right. only impulsive, but they must think that they're not going to get harmed. And so what the research in this area shows is around 20 years ago, when people actually sat down and said, hey, what do you really think about risk as a 15-year-old <laughs> or a 17-year-old? Instead of assuming what adults think. Do you think you're invincible? Yeah. Do you think you're invincible? What adolescents said was not that they think they're invincible, but in fact, that they think that they're really vulnerable, even more vulnerable than at other times of life. 
So when you talk to adolescents about the risk of pregnancy from one-time unprotected sex or the risk of transmission of HIV or the risk of dying from cancer or the risk of whatever, what you find is that they have numbers that are really, really high, like hundreds of percent higher than they actually are. That young people believe the risk of pregnancy is 90, 95% from one-time unprotected sex. But it's nothing near that level. Young people think that the risk of HIV transmission is 75, 80, 90%, but it's nowhere near that level. So the reason I bring that up early in the book is to make the point that it's not because they think they're invincible that they engage in risk. And I think that yeah. if you think that they think they're invincible, then the strategies that you come up with to address risk are teaching them again and again that they are vulnerable, that the right. risk of this is really high, the risk of that is really high, don't you see, don't you understand? And we start yeah. addressing these things cognitively, but in fact, all the strategies that we have developed where we teach people again and again about risk, there's a certain saturation. Yeah, it's good to know that a condom protects you from pregnancy yeah, and STDs, right. but there's only a certain point at which that, that lesson is valuable. After that, it's just noise in the air. And so it stops being a helpful message and we put all of our efforts into an area that isn't effective. Now, I wanna give a caveat here and I wanna say that, that some people do think they're invincible and some people do have what we call an optimistic bias. They think, well, bad things will happen, but they won't happen to me. But the issue here at play is that when you talk to adults about these very same risks, what's the likelihood of you getting hurt or what's the likelihood of you getting a divorce as an adult or you dying at a certain age, what have you, adults actually are just as fanciful in their impressions. They think uh -huh. they are, are just as invincible as adolescents, in other words. And in fact, in many studies, adults think they're more invincible. And maybe that's a product of living longer and being successful. But the lesson from that is that it's not invincibility that causes adolescents to take risks. And so I start the book yeah. with that, that chapter because what I really want to emphasize is that adolescents aren't doing this because they think they're all that. You know, they're not, they're not jumping off of a bridge into the water below or having unprotected sex because they're thumbing their nose at the parents and the teachers and society. It's for other reasons. And those other reasons come later in the book, but it's not because they think they're invincible. And yet you have this great story of like asking your daughter these questions, being like, so hey, well, just, you know, quick quiz. What do you think if you were to have some unprotected sex, what would the likelihood be that you get pregnant? She's like, oh, maybe 90%, you know, and and you're like, well, do I tell her that the true right. number is, you know, less than that? And you're like, have this like kind of moment of conflict because as a parent, it's like, well, thinking that it's higher than it really is, maybe that's not a bad thing. But right. so I think that's based on kind of this this way of thinking about why teenagers engage in risk yeah. that you kind of dismantle through this book. That's that's really interesting. But so then the question, of course, that leaves us with is if they really believe that. 90%, they have 90% chance of getting pregnant every time they have unprotected sex, then why would they ever right. engage in that activity? Exactly. <clears throat> I think I mentioned this in the book. Uh, a student says to me that the risk of getting pregnant from one time unprotected intercourse is 95%, but for me, it's 100% because I had bad luck. <laughs> yeah, so, I actually highlighted that in yeah. the book. I thought that was so great. So I think that's really common, and I think that it begs the question, just as you're saying, Andy, so if they really think it's 90%, 95%, 100%, why would you ever have unprotected sex? What are you thinking? And again, this brings up then the next handful of chapters in the book, which are really articulating the reasons as to what we understand now. So they, they take risks in spite of the fact, not because of the fact, but in spite of the fact that they believe that they're highly vulnerable. 
And so one part of the explanation lies in dopamine and the idea of prediction error, which kind of you explained by thinking about M&Ms and like the idea that when you eat an M&M, the fair for the very first time you ever eat an M&M, it just blows your mind how delicious it is. And there's like this huge mismatch that occurs between your expectations of looking at this little round thing and then putting it in your mouth and realizing like how good it really is that when those things occur, and especially, you know, it connotes some sort of a survival value, like there's a high caloric content here, there's high energy, and that is like ding, 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 your, your yeah, dopamine exactly. system, you know? And so yeah. I think that's like, there's such a perfect example, but also so many of those things are happening during the teenage years where it's your first time doing so much stuff. And then you also kind of point out, it's like then the perfect storm. So, so that's, a, that's a great thing to talk about for a second. So, so remember what's happening in adolescence developmentally. People are going from child to adult and yeah. evolutionarily speaking, it happens quite quickly. There's puberty and within a couple of years of hitting puberty, you are reproductively viable. And historically, evolutionarily, our species was having babies at 14, 15, 16, and that's what our bodies are still designed to do. It's only 10,000 years ago that, that you know we were sort of living that way. So yeah. an evolution, physical evolution takes longer than that. So we are essentially still living in a modern day with a body that is designed to be on the savanna with a lot of people dying at a young age, a lot of people dying of childbirth. We better have babies quickly. So we're driven for that. And dopamine, it, many people think of dopamine as a neurochemical of pleasure. What it really is, is a neurochemical of potential pleasure. The idea that this may feel good and feeling good matters. It, it, I say it's a neurochemical of potential pleasure, but really what its neurochemical job is, is to help us stay alive. It's to teach us things. So if it tastes good, if it feels good, if it might feel good, do it and do it a lot. And if it doesn't protect you, don't do it. And that's what dopamine is, is there for. So, you know, food, certain foods taste good, certain foods or non-food items taste really bad. We don't eat poop. Why? It tastes really bad. If poop tasted good, people would eat it. Why do we have, you know, what, what is it about our evolutionary mechanism that has taught us that? Well, it's dangerous to eat poop. People get sick when they eat poop, so you don't eat poop. So it sure. tastes bad. Right. Other things taste good. Sex feels good. If sex didn't feel good, there's no one any no way anyone would ever think about putting a penis in a vagina. It's just like right. totally like, what are you thinking? I mean, that's insane, yeah. except for that it feels good. And so then we started to do it. And then by God, babies yeah. are made. And so you know, these things drive us. And dopamine is in higher amounts in our brains during adolescence than any other time of life. So things don't just feel good, they feel outrageously good. Whoa, right. There you go. You know, it's like the ding, 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 as you said. Yeah, right. So they're driven to do behaviors in part neurochemically by the huge amounts of dopamine they have. Think about the roller coaster rides that kids like. Think about the horror movies that teenagers like. These things that really stimulate you, they're into at that age because dopamine is begging the question. And they're learning from all these things. So in the event that you have an M&M or you, you know, snort a line of cocaine and you get this really high level of dopamine, your body is a little tricked thinking like, oh, there's something really valuable here. Yeah, I have to get into this right. more. I got to eat more chocolate. I got to do more cocaine. I got to have more sex. So there's, there's an element of dopamine that is at play in why people take risk. You write on page 49 that things will never feel this good again, 
Likewise, bad experiences may never again feel this bad. As adults, dopamine is shared better between our emotional centers and our prefrontal cortex, and these parts of the brain are much better connected, which allows the CEO to have a much bigger impact on the emotional brain, all of which allows adults to take more time, act less impulsively, and be more thoughtful when making decisions that present an element of risk. So it's kind of like these freeways open yeah. up a little more that just allow That's it, right. allow it to communicate. It's like it gets upgraded from the you know dial-up internet to the fiber optic, and you know, or uh, is like have way better control of what's going on down there a little bit, or ability to respond as like yeah. emotional. And that, and that and that the learning during these years is really profound. So it's if you're traumatized during your teenage years or you have an experience that's bad just like if you have an experience that's good you're really likely to remember it during this time so you find people really having long long lasting trauma that sometimes happens during these years or also just setting up life patterns if you know if you saw the tiger and the tiger scared you or you almost got eaten by the tiger you may really stay away from that place forever and that happens to some degree in childhood but even more and more as you age into adolescence and so people develop these patterns And you then kind of incorporate that into your sense of identity and those flashbulb incidents into your personal narrative of, you know, even like, oh, well, I was pretty, I was pretty cocky as a kid, but then I had this incident with a tiger and I really like uh, realized, you know, that you have to be prepared before you go out on any, whatever you have to be prepared. And so now I always do this, this, and this. That's right. Those things are harder to unlearn as you get older. So I give the example of being on my bicycle at 14 and getting hit by a motorcycle. And I still have in my mind, as I say it right now, that flashbulb memory, like you said, I had the picture, I see myself sitting on the fender of that motorcycle and I hear the girls yeah, scream and totally. I feel the glass breaking against my leg and it's just like boom that will and then the next picture is me rolling over 20 feet away on the you know rolling over many times on the railroad tracks that were right there and that flashbulb memory you know taught me even though I thought I had looked I guess I hadn't and so the looking left looking left right left that's like in my head now and that has stayed with me it's totally harder right. to unlearn those things once you've had some sort of a big traumatic reaction or negative event as well in those years so the reason is because we i guess have this kind of perfect storm of things going on in the brain and there's a really increased level of plasticity during that time where we can kind of learn those profound things that really change how we see you know who we are in the world and how we want to be and something interesting that you brought up in the book is the idea that you know this period of adolescence is kind of extending you know people keep talking about how there's this emerging adulthood now and it's kind of actually doesn't end at 18 anymore it ends in the 20s and well maybe early 30s you kind of point out actually that there's some real benefit to that because it gives us a much longer period of being in that plasticity and being able to kind of experiment and try things out. Obviously, it's like anything. There's a cost to it in terms of that we're not just jumping right into the workforce. So there's a delay in, you know, producing and contributing to the economy, maybe. But at the same time, there's like such a value to that period of additional growth. So I don't know. Yeah, I, I thought that was really interesting. It's something for parents to think about when you're kind of thinking like, man, I wish my kid would just hurry up and grow up a little bit. Yeah, I think it's I think it's mixed. I think that there's a real value for people to find their path at a pace that makes sense for them. That doesn't mean that people should go to college and move home and do nothing and sit in the basement and work part time at Starbucks and smoke a lot of weed. That's not what I'm advocating for. But I am advocating for and understanding that the average age of medical students who start medical school in this country is 25, not 22. 
and that mm -hmm. there's a range and that the average age of law students, I don't know what it is, but it's not 22 either. You know, the idea that it's, yeah. it's good to take some time and it's good to have a little bit of an opportunity to figure out what you really want to do because a lot of people are unhappy when they enter and are regimented from the beginning. Some people aren't unhappy with that and some people do very well with that and they know exactly what they wanted since they were five years of age and it works out beautifully for them. And other people similarly uh, can get derailed by having too much uh, lack of structure. So I, I think that it varies for different people, but the reality is what we've learned is that the brain is mostly set up by 23, but really as late as 26, even 30 years of age, there are still brain changes going on that are significant of growth towards a more adult kind of mindset. So there's an opportunity during those years to not have to shut everything down, but to continue our growth, continue our learning, pick up new hobbies, pick up new interests, explore things, do some travel. And it's gotten easier to do some of that in the world. So I think it's a real opportunity for people. And I think it's a way that we're going to ultimately solve some problems by people having more exposures as opposed to fewer. We're here with Dr. Jess Shatkin talking about why teens take risks and what parents can do to help keep them safe. And we're not done yet. Here's a look at what's coming up in the second half of the show. Whatever angry feelings we have, this is your kid responding to thousands and hundreds of thousands and hundreds of millions of years of evolution, and you're not going to knock it out of them with a logical argument or restricting privileges. You know, when you're a teenager, it's okay for me, but not for you, doesn't go well. And they found that those who came out on top of the social hierarchy had more D2 receptors than those who didn't. And by the way, those who were lower on the social hierarchy, when given the opportunity to inject cocaine, they would ask for more of it. Whereas those on the top of the social hierarchy were like, nah, I'm not so interested no, in cocaine. I'm good with the cocaine. Yeah, right. <laughs> I'm good because you know they're on top of the social hierarchy. They don't need the drug. But those who are lower in the social hierarchy feel like the drug helps them to tolerate their place in society. As a coping and mechanism. As a coping mechanism, probably. And so that's the inference from this study. And it's it's also the point is that these monkeys didn't start with lower D2 levels. They developed them probably based on their place in society. Want to hear the full interview? Sign up for a subscription today. You get unlimited access to all the interviews I've conducted. It's completely affordable, and your subscription helps support the work we do here at Talking to Teens. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time.